Morning, church. Glad to be here with you this morning. Despite what Tim said, I'm going to do my best not to put you to sleep. I have to say, though, that in preparing for this sermon and in studying this text, I thought, man, I really wish I could preach this sermon to a bunch of Jews. In fact, I told somebody last week, I said, this is tailor-made to be preached to a bunch of Jews. And then I thought, well, it is from the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's kind of right there in the title, so I guess that, I guess that makes sense. But if, if I'm going to settle, uh, y'all are a good-looking bunch of Gentiles, so I guess you'll have to do. And I have no doubt, in all seriousness, that God has something to teach us from Hebrews 8 today. So let's go ahead and jump in. We're actually going to start, if you want to turn in your Bibles, uh, to Hebrews 7. We're going to start in verse 26 and read all the way through chapter 8 as I think the argument begins before we get into chapter 8. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And now, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. God, we admit to you that we desperately need you this morning. On our own, we are utterly incapable of understanding and applying your word. And as we continue worshiping this morning, we pray for your help. I pray that you would help me to rightly divide the word and that you would help those who hear to rightly understand and apply the word to their lives. We pray this to you, Father, that it might bring glory to the name of your Son, Jesus, and we pray that the Spirit would help us to understand. Amen. So the author of Hebrews has been making a fairly simple case throughout the eight chapters that we've read so far. He's making the case that Jesus is better. Better than angels, better than Moses, better than the Levitical priesthood. And today we're going to dive even deeper into this, and Hebrews 8 is going to offer even more examples of how Jesus is better. And if I had to boil down the entire sermon to one statement, it would be this. Jesus, He's the real thing. Again, Jesus, He's the real thing. And if that sounds like great marketing to you, it's because I stole it from Coca-Cola. Hopefully they're not going to come after me or Cornerstone. Um, But keep that statement in the back of your mind as we read. Jesus, He's the real thing. Hebrews 8 verse 1 tells us that our high priest, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Majesty in heaven here is referring to God the Father. So our high priest, Jesus, is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of the Father. In verse 2, we're told that Jesus is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So if your ears perk up when you hear holy places and tent, and you think tabernacle, because the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a tent, and it contained in it an area called the holy place, and another called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, then good for you. God provided detailed plans for the tabernacle, and this is what Hebrews 8 verse 5 is referring to when it says, Moses was about to erect the tent as he was instructed by God, who said, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. God gave explicit instructions, the details of which you can find in Exodus chapters 26 through 28. I'm not going to read all of that to you today. I encourage you to go and read it for yourself. But I do want to read one relevant passage in chapter 26. Exodus 26 verses 31 through 34. 
And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. And it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps, and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Leviticus 16 lays out for us that the high priest was only to enter the most holy place once a year for a day of atonement. And this is the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. But the high priest could only enter after offering sacrifices to atone for his own sin. Only then could he offer sacrifices for the people as a whole. And so that was the purpose of the tabernacle and later the temple. Many of you have heard this legend uh, about the priest that they would attach bells to his garments and then tie a rope around his ankle. And the idea being, if he went in there and the bells stopped jingling, they would know, okay, well, he's dead, so let's drag him out by the rope. I want to be really clear, there's absolutely no evidence that this actually happened. It's not in the Bible, uh, and there are no historical records uh, that tell us that this is anything more than... A legend. So why am I mentioning a legend that we don't even think happened? Well, it's because I think that, number one, it's pervasive, uh, and I want to debunk it. Uh, but the main reason is it persists because it highlights the seriousness with which the priest had to go about their duty. So it makes a helpful point. They had to do everything just right or death was a real possibility. The legend of the rope and the bells may be just a legend, but the possibility of death was very real. And we see in Leviticus 10 that this actually happened. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, offered, quote, unauthorized fire before the Lord. They didn't offer according to the Lord's strict instructions, and some scholars even think they attempted to enter the Holy of Holies when they shouldn't have. And what happened to them? They were killed instantly. The point is that God will not allow His holiness to be violated. There is an enormous gulf between sinful man and a holy God. God takes sin very seriously and He cannot tolerate it. So Hebrews 8.2 refers to Jesus as minister in the holy places. Is this referring to the tabernacle? No. It's referring to... Uh, sorry. Now that we have a high priest in Jesus, it's a bit of a misnomer to refer to the most holy place in the tabernacle as the most holy place. When God enacted the earthly priesthood in Exodus... It was appropriate to call it the most holy place because at the time, that was the most holy place accessible to the priest. But now, we have Jesus. Now the title most holy place belongs not to an earthly tent set up by man, but a true spiritual tent set up by God. 
So where is the most holy place? It's where Jesus ministers at the right hand of the Father. As a heavenly priest, he ministers not in an earthly tent, but literally in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father is huge, and it's the essence of Jesus' heavenly priesthood. You see, Jesus actually couldn't have been an earthly priest because according to the law, he was not fit. Why? Was it because he was impure? No, of course not. It was because according to the instructions set forth in Exodus, priests were to come from the line of Levi. So Aaron and his sons were the first priests, and they were Levites. But Jesus isn't a Levite. Jesus descends from the tribe of Judah. That's right. Thank you. So according to the law, according to his lineage, he actually couldn't be an earthly priest. And verse 4 reminds us of this. It says, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus' priesthood is not according to the law. It's not according to what was laid out in Exodus. It's not an earthly priesthood, but a heavenly one. If Jesus is a heavenly priest and not an earthly priest, does that mean he gets off the hook and he doesn't have to make an offering as the earthly priest did? No, of course not. Remember how seriously God takes sin. A blood sacrifice is just as necessary in Jesus' heavenly priesthood. Chapter 8, verse 3 tells us, It is necessary for Jesus, as high priest, also to have something to offer. What does he offer? He offers himself. A few verses in chapter 7 explain why this heavenly priesthood is so much better. And the main reason is that Jesus' atoning sacrifice is not the blood of goats and bulls which previously had to be shed over and over and over to atone for sin. His atoning sacrifice is his own blood. Chapter 7, verse 27, which we read, says, He offered up the perfect sacrifice once for all when he offered up himself. So not only was his sacrifice perfect, Jesus' sacrifice as heavenly priest is permanent. Chapter 7, verse 24 tells us that he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So Jesus now resurrected, reigns forever as a priest king, as Tim covered last week. His heavenly priesthood far surpasses any earthly priesthood that ever existed or that ever could have existed. The best possible earthly priesthood could not accomplish what Jesus accomplishes as our heavenly high priest. In the same way that Jesus' heavenly priesthood shifts our understanding of the most holy place, it also shifts our understanding of what it even means to be a high priest. It's not just that he's a better high priest, he's the best high priest. And it's not just that he's the best high priest, he's the best possible high priest because his priesthood is spiritual and not earthly. He's not just different in quality, he's completely different in kind. Further, the
covenant of which he is the minister is better because it points us fully to the reality of who God is. Chapter 8, verse 5 tells us that the old high priest serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Their earthly priest was merely a copy, a shadow, an image of the reality that Jesus would later embody in his heavenly priesthood. The tabernacle itself was a shadow or a copy of the true tent in heaven where Jesus ministers. Jesus, as heavenly high priest, is the real thing, and he ministers in the true tent where the earthly priest was a shadow serving in a replica. Everything about Christ's priesthood is better, but ultimately it's better because it rests on a better covenant. Starting in verse 6, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the old covenant, it was okay. We can acknowledge that it did what it was supposed to do. The new covenant, the covenant of which Jesus is the mediator, is far better. So what's the old covenant? The old covenant is the Mosaic covenant, which Tim talked about last week, or the law. In his handout, he described it as a conditional promise for blessing or for curse. The old earthly priesthood was a part of this. So Deuteronomy 11.13 says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and soul, then blessings will follow. In verses 16 and 17, But take care, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. You hear the if-then, the conditional aspect of it. And we get a, a great summary of it in Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. Conditional promise. Obey the law, good things happen. Disobey the law, bad things happen. Conditional curse. This is the essence of the old covenant. So when the author of Hebrews says in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, is he saying that something is wrong with the old covenant? Not exactly. Part of the fault that he mentions here is not with the covenant itself, but with those charged with keeping the covenant. So all of humanity, including those to whom the law was originally given, are sinful. It's impossible for us on our own to keep a covenant based on a law. If mankind were capable of being good, of obeying the law, of keeping this conditional covenant on our own, there would have been no need for a second covenant. And that's what he's saying. Further, the fault of the covenant itself is only that due to the fault in man, the old covenant is incomplete. It's not bad. It's just that the sinfulness of man means that it's ultimately ineffective. But that's okay. In the same way that the earthly priesthood and the tabernacle were mere shadows, 
pointing to Jesus' heavenly priesthood, so too the old covenant was a shadow pointing to the new. Where the old covenant was effective was in pointing out sin. Where the earthly priesthood was effective was in establishing a pattern of sacrifice. Now remember, Christ didn't abolish the old covenant. He fulfilled it. The old covenant always and only ever pointed to the new covenant. Christ fulfilled the law by keeping it and he completed the, the pattern of sacrifice established in the old covenant by becoming the once for all perfect sacrifice. The new covenant in Jesus is the real thing. The old covenant was a shadow. So what is the new covenant? Hebrews 8, 8 through 12 again. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. You hear the conditional. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people without condition. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Of course, this is a quote directly from Jeremiah chapter 31, in verses 31 through 34. A fact with which the original audience, hearing this sermon, the book of Hebrews, preached, they would have been familiar with that. In the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, while rebuilding the temple... Hilkiah the priest discovered what 2 Kings 22.11 calls the book of the law, probably Deuteronomy. So King Josiah had it read to him, and when he hears it, he's grieved because he realizes how far off the mark the people of God are in following the law. So the king brings together all the people, and he reads the book of the law to them. And this kicks off repentance by the king, by the people, they destroy their idols and they renew the covenant, the old covenant before the Lord. So what does this have to do with Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8? Well, Jeremiah, like all of the prophets before him, went around preaching repentance and teaching the old covenant. So Jeremiah 11, 6-7. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. This is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, and this is the message that Jeremiah preached. Even though Jeremiah preached the old covenant, and even though Jeremiah had seen a glimmer of hope when the people repented under King Josiah, he preached that the old covenant was effective, ineffective, to save. God revealed to him this to him and to the people. So here's Jeremiah chapter 31 quoted in Hebrews 8 
prophesying a new covenant. What's new about it? What's better about it? What about this new covenant makes the old one obsolete, as Hebrews 8.13 tells us? In verse 9, God says, It will not be like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. One way they're different, the old covenant was conditional. The new covenant is unconditional. We're reminded of the conditional nature of the old covenant here in this very verse. Quote, For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. God's favor was conditional, conditional upon the people keeping the law. The people didn't keep the law, so God shows no concern for them. Verse 10, with the new covenant, God says, I will put the laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is a beautiful and unconditional promise from the Lord. The problem with the old covenant, again, was not the covenant itself. It was the problem of the people charged with keeping it. The problem was one of flesh or one of the heart of man. When God says here that he will write the laws on our hearts, he's saying that he's giving us new hearts. As sinners, we are completely incapable of internalizing the law. So God says, no problem, I'll do it in you. And this is what Paul is talking about in Romans 8, verse 3, when he says, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. This is an act of God. Ezekiel states this even more clearly in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 through 28. And this is God speaking. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Since God is the one doing the work here, there's nothing conditional about it. If you are one of God's people, there's nothing you can do to lose this in the same way that you didn't do anything to gain it. Look again. God is not only the one giving you a new heart, He's also the one responsible for you walking in His statutes and obeying His rules. If God is the one keeping the law for you, then you can't be a lawbreaker. Verse 11 in Hebrews 8 shows us that God's people will know Him. No longer is knowledge of God based on memorizing the law or even keeping it in our flesh. It's based on the fact that God made Himself known to His people. The people of God here is not restricted to an ethnic group 
or a nation to whom the law was given. The church is God's people. And I don't mean uh, Cornerstone Baptist Church. I don't even mean Southern Baptist churches. I mean the church universal. The group of believers which spans geography and history who God has made His people. To those people, God offers a great promise in verse 12. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Brothers and sisters, listen to that again. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. We are all sinners. And as sinners, we are all separated from God. The great promise that we have in Jesus, and we see it in this passage, is twofold. Number one, our sins are forgiven. And number two, we will be God's people. We will be with God. So what about this new covenant makes the old one obsolete? What's better about it? Christ is better. Christ is the heavenly priest of which the earthly priests were only a shadow. He paid for our sins with His once-for-all sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, we can be called the people of God. The new covenant means that we are no longer reliant on shadows or copies in order to know God. We have the real thing. We have Jesus. Uh, my wife Amber's sister, Haley, and her husband have been apart for months. See, he's serving our country in the Air Force, and he's stationed in uh, Turkey. And unlike previous tours that he served, this one is unaccompanied, so Haley wasn't allowed to go with him. So he shipped out to Turkey uh, a few months ago, and Haley moved to Texas until his tour is over. Well, Kyle was granted leave a couple of weeks ago, so he came home. And I wasn't personally there when they were reunited, and nor did I ask how that reunion went down because I don't want my overly romanticized bubble burst. But I have an image in my mind of how that went down. So picture this with me, if you will. Sister-in-law Haley standing at great romantic setting called baggage claim. And she's been there all day, couldn't sleep, so excited. So she got there early. She's standing there waiting all day. And she looks up and she sees Kyle off in the distance. Their eyes meet. Their faces light up. And they start moving towards one another, slow at first. And they start running. And everybody around, they see him and they start clapping because that's what people do in airports when they see somebody in fatigues running to someone else. They say, look, it's a military person being reunited with their loved ones. Everybody's clapping. And so they're closing the distance. 50 feet, 40 feet, 30 feet, 20 feet, 10 feet. Can you picture this scene? Can you imagine how excited they must have been? Now, 
Put yourself back in the scene and imagine that they hit the five-foot mark. They hit five feet and they stop dead. They look at each other and they pull their phones out of their pocket. And they make a FaceTime video call to each other and they turn around and they walk in opposite directions. Right? So here they are. They're being reunited on this four-inch screen. And they're holding it up and they're saying, Oh, I missed you so much. If only I could hold you. Oh, you look so great. Hold the phone out a little. Oh, is that a new dress? Right? Like, picture this scene. This is absolutely absurd. When you have no other choice, when you're thousands of miles apart and one of you is in Turkey and the other is in Texas, FaceTime is fantastic. But when you're face-to-face, staring at each other on a screen, staring at an image just doesn't cut it. FaceTime is a copy or a shadow of actually being in the presence of the one you love. Why would you settle for a copy when the real thing is staring you in the face? When you're in the presence of your loved ones, FaceTime is obsolete. You see, the old covenant is like FaceTime. It's not bad, but it's also not getting the job done. The law will point out your sins, but it will do nothing to put you in the presence of God. Jesus came along and said, there is a better way. I am the better way. Quit trying to make this old covenant do something that it was never intended to do. The message is don't accept the shadow. Don't settle for the copy when the real thing is right in front of you. But like I said earlier, I'm not preaching to a room full of Jews. (laughs) This application would be a lot more straightforward if I were. I doubt that you all woke up this morning and thought much about sin offerings or Yom Kippur If that was part of your Bible study this morning, wow, uh, that was really timely. If the way to understand this text were only, hey, rely on the new covenant and don't rely on the law, most of us would say, check, and we'd walk out of here and that would be it. But I think there's a broader application that we Gentiles can take from this text. The old covenant was a shadow Pointing to the new covenant in the same way, anything in our lives that stands in for Jesus when it should only be a shadow is something we should be treating as obsolete. So where do you find your hope? Do you find your hope in your work? Do you find all of your fulfillment in getting up in the morning and going to the job site? Do you find your hope in your family? In your relationship with your spouse? 
or in how proud you are of your kids or your grandkids? Do you find your hope in your hobbies and in entertainment? Are you living for the weekend when you can do what you really want to do? Do you find your hope in your health? When someone near you gets sick, do you say, whew, glad that's not me. There's hope there. Do you find your hope in all of your stuff? Are you amassing a bunch of earthly possessions hoping that you'll find worth in them? What is it in your life that you cannot live without? When you answer that question, you will know where your hope is. What if tomorrow morning you woke up and like Job, you've lost every dime in your bank account, you've lost your house, you've lost everything you own, and every member of your family is gone. Oh, and to top it all off, you're so sick that you are physically unrecognizable to your best friends. In other words, what if that thing or things in which you put your hope completely disappears? In the same way that the Old Covenant was never meant to bear the weight of salvation, neither were any of these other things. Just like the Old Covenant was a shadow pointing to the New Covenant, so are all these things in our lives designed to point to Christ. These are good things, but they're not ultimate. Again, don't settle for the shadow. Don't settle for the FaceTime call when the real thing is right in front of you. You like your job? Good. Use it to make much of Christ. You love your wife and kids? Good. Don't make them into idols. They are terrible gods. Love them unto the Lord. Are you healthy? Praise God. Use that to point to Him. You can't find ultimate fulfillment in or put your hopes and dreams in any of these things because they don't save. They are not God. The only hope we have, the only thing that is unwavering and will never go away, is to be able to say, in keeping with Hebrews 8 and Jeremiah 31, He is my God and we are His people. And because of Jesus, my sins will be remembered no more. Is that true of you? Can you honestly say that today? Let's pray.